HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is presented by Shaxbury Cider. This week on Meet and 3, we bring you stories about the coldest, darkest season. We start in a California vineyard. It's cold, but it's wet, and things are still alive. There's a lot of life in this soil. We explore two frontiers of cocktail culture, luxury ice and the rise of non-alcoholic drinks. The rocks traditionally becomes 25% of your drink's volume, and as such, it imparts smells and tastes. And we investigate the risks facing New York City delivery workers during the harsh winter. In the wintertime, after two hours of biking, it's quite easy, actually, for the bikes to sing upside down or slips or slide. Tune in to this week's episode of Meat and 3, that's M-E-A-T plus sign T-H-R-E-E, for some food for thought to sustain you through the dead of winter. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to Feast Your Ears. I'm Harry Rosenblum. I love to talk with people about what they do and how it influences their personal food stories. This is a show about people, life, and food. If you're just tuning in for the first time, all the previous episodes of Feast Your Ears can be found in the archives at heritageradionetwork.org. I'm thankful for listeners like you, and I'd love it if you'd leave me a review wherever you find this podcast. I'm headed to the Charleston Food and Wine Fest in a few weeks here in March, and I would love to hear any suggestions you have for great folks to interview, places to eat, things to see. Shoot me an email, harry at thebrooklynkitchen.com, or DM me on Instagram at thefoodballer. Today is episode 134 of Feast Your Ears. Today's theme, when work is play, is work. Mark Twain said, find a job you enjoy doing and you'll never have to work a day in your life. We often have a love-hate relationship with work, but that doesn't have to be the case. Maybe we can swing it so that we enjoy it 60% of the time, 70% of the time, maybe more. I don't know if you'll enjoy everything every day, but we can strive. If you asked me to identify something I'd love to do, it might look something like what my guest today does for a living. John Hutt is the executive chef at the Museum of Food and Drink. That doesn't mean he's making meals in a fancy cafe or a museum restaurant. It means he gets to explore the exhibits and ideas of the museum through cooking and sharing that food and experience with visitors, employees, researchers, and more. I've always loved museums. They're a place to play and learn and explore the world from one location. Whether that's in an art museum where you can travel through time, 
or science museum where you can explore physics, chemistry, and more, to the Museum of Food and Drink, where you can travel through time, space, and the world via your belly. As we've become more and more obsessed with food and cooking, we should remember to look to the past or to the side. MoFad's a great resource for helping spur those conversations and give access to and airtime to fascinating ideas around food in the modern age, where it came from and where it might be headed. John and I sat down recently to discuss everything from why a Chinese chef's knife is the pinnacle of tool design to where to find the largest selection of Georgian mineral water in New York City. Give it a listen. I hope you like it. Thanks, John, for taking time to sit down with me today. Can you uh, introduce yourself and tell me what you do? Sure. I'm John Hutt. I'm the chef at the Museum of Food and Drink in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. And I kind of run all of the anything food, well, not anything food related because the whole museum is food related, <laughs> but anything that you actually eat and consume in the museum. Awesome. Right. Uh, and so, you know, what is that? I mean, you know, when when... I hear museum chef, right? Lots of museums, especially in New York now, are known for their cafes and things like that. But that's not really what you do, right? You prepare bites related to exhibits. How does it work? Yeah, so we do. It's basically threefold what we do. One is for each exhibit, we want to have a tasting component to the exhibition. But just like the museum is a curated collection of artifacts the tasting studio is a curated collection of tastings so we work with different chefs from whatever the whatever the topic is so right now we're doing chinese american foods we work with chinese american chefs who run chinese american restaurants we ask them for recipes they give us the recipes we execute them and then people get to taste them egg for young chop suey that kind of thing yeah modern chinese american food as well uh, okay. So we do, Got like, it. those foundational ones. We're doing chop suey right now. Wo Hop gave us their Egg Fu Young recipe. Oh, cool. Uh, but we also do modern Chinese. So, like, Thomas Chen from Tuomei gave us two, two different recipes. Chris Chung from East Wind Snack Shop, he gave us a great recipe. Right. Very yeah. cool. And so how much leeway do you have in there as a chef to play with stuff? Is it basically your playground? Like, you look at an exhibit and you're like, I want to work with octopus one day and rabbit the next? How does it work? Yeah, well, that's the other part. So we also have a food lab. So we have a food lab because the museum's only open Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Right. And when we're doing the dishes of the chef, we want to be very very careful that we're doing the, the dish the way they want to do the dish. Sure. So we don't want to mess with... Because it's, it's, it's just like an artifact. You wouldn't, like, repaint an artifact unless you were... A, well, I guess people do do that, but the idea is you wouldn't want to like annotate. Right, you're not going to display a painting with your own yeah. painting over it. Exactly. Yeah. Same same for recipes. So we try to be as faithful as possible with those, um, and that and that's not a problem because a lot of the chefs we work with. I mean, if you want to be a cook, you have to be able to do what you're told and ex- right. execute the same thing in the same way. Sure. But then what we also do in the food lab is the more creative, interesting. Uh, kind of playground stuff. We do a lot of research into fermentation, a lot of research into ancient foods, historical foods, futuristic food, um, all sorts of stuff in the food lab. Very cool. So, I mean, to me, as someone who, you know, I've I've been in, I I worked a little bit in restaurants, but I was never like a restaurant chef. To me, it sounds like an amazing opportunity. It sounds like you have like an awesome job. Yes, I would agree. It is an awesome (laughs) job, absolutely. Um, And your history is coming out of restaurants, right? You were working uh, as a chef. Yeah, more or less. Yeah. I was just prior to... I moved to the United States to work for MoFat specifically. Got it. Prior to that, I was working at the El Bui Foundation in Barcelona, which was another food lab doing a lot of food research. They're really into cataloging and understanding things, Mm. as well as creating new techniques, recipes, and things like that. Got it. So I was in their creative team where you would take something, catalog it, learn everything you can about it, put it into neat little boxes, and then just kind of disregard all the rules and try to make something new Hmm. and then we did a 
exhibition at this place called Cosmo Cascia in Barcelona that was an exhibition on panko tomat, which is like the bread and tomato. Yeah. The Catalonians love it. And that was the first food exhibition that they'd done in Europe that was focused on just food. Hmm. And then so as we were doing this this uh, exhibition, I started looking up food museums. I found MoFAD. And I'd been in New York before, so I wanted to come back to New York, and I figured I would see if MoFAD would have me. Yeah. And luckily they did. And they were they were looking for a chef, so yeah, I mean, that's, a, that's, a, that's great. Um, so for listeners who don't know, MoFAD is the Museum of Food and Drink. You can find their website at mofad.org. Um, it's a great museum. It's, it's in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. Um, as John said, it's open Friday, Saturday, Sunday. The exhibit that's up now is Chow still, right? Yeah. Um, which is a focus on Chinese food in America and sort of how that came about. But they have some other really cool things there. They have their smell synth, um, and that was from a flavor exhibit yeah, from the past. Awesome. Is the puffing gun still there? The puffing gun is still there. And I actually <laughs> bought a mini puffing gun that we're going to try to get up and running so that people can see actually use the puffing gun. Oh, actually. very cool. Yeah, I was there the first time the, the big puffing gun got fired. Those things are uh, crazy. Yeah, they're huge. Yeah, very, very intense. For for those that don't know the puffing gun, uh, you can you can look it up, uh, and there's information on Mofad's site. But it was the way that puffed cereal was first made by heating grain under pressure and then releasing that pressure. And in the release of the pressure, the rice or whatever expands. So that's how Rice Krispies and things are made. Um, Somewhat dangerous and terrifying to see that that one run uh, in person. And the one we the one we bought was from Alibaba, and they have these kind of street vending for puffed rice. It looks ah. like a little hand cannon. It's about let's say half a meter across, black carbon steel, no safety valves at all, not even a pressure gauge, and you just hook it up, you close it, you put it over an open flame, and rotate it <laughs> until such time as you feel it's ready. And then you hit it into a sack and it explodes puffed rice. Wow. You can look that up on YouTube. So we're attempting to kind of make that safe. Safe. <laughs> which, which means bulletproof glass and a bunch of fail safe. Very cool. Very cool. Uh, I want to say happy birthday. Right? Thank Yesterday you so much. was your birthday. It was, yeah. Uh, on Instagram, uh, if you look John up, he's Crastafarian. Uh, on Instagram, you will see uh, some of the delicious feasts, right? You had, you had Georgian food yesterday. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, where did it come from? I have never had Georgian food in America. I've eaten Georgian food in Ukraine. That's probably pretty good Georgian food. Um, my wife works down uh, near Sunset Park. Ah. And there's, a, there's a really good Georgian restaurant there. Super cool. And also sometimes we'll go out to Brighton Beach. There's a good Georgian nice. restaurant there as well. I saw you had some Borjomi, my favorite salty water. Yeah, that stuff is great. <laughs> I'm a big mineral water fan, actually. Yeah. I mean, in East, that part of Eastern Europe, I feel like, is full of it. When, when my wife and I went to Ukraine years ago, my sister-in-law was there, and her boyfriend at the time was there on a Fulbright. And so we went and we traveled around, and I remember we went to a Georgian restaurant where all they had to drink was really salty mineral water yeah. and really sweet wine. Sounds and it was like this hard, like, we're eating and we're thirsty, so we keep ordering more salty water, which doesn't really slake your thirst. And then we're drinking the sweet wine and we're getting thirstier and thirstier. And I remember we, like, left there. We had to go buy just, like, bottle, like, huge bottle of just, like, regular water. <laughs> it's 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 a huge part of the culture as well. My, so my wife's Russian, so we go to ah, Russia a lot. okay. And I, I like to drag her down to Brighton Beach and do grocery shopping. And there's always, if you ever want to find the best selection of mineral waters in New York City, go to Brighton Beach, yeah. go to Tashkent or, or uh, Gormanov, and they have a whole aisle of mineral waters. And all the Georgian ones, they're all organized by spring. So there's like spring two, spring four, spring 12. Oh. Spring four is always the like weirdest. Huh. That's like the Vichy Catalan of okay. like, Georgia. Sure. Uh, 
yeah, I mean, it, it's really it's something that we don't really do much here in this country. I mean, we have a little bit of spring water. Saratoga Springs is pretty funky. Yeah, yes, yeah, very sulfury. Yeah, right. You have to let it burn off before you drink. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, what was your favorite? Day? Like, what was the best thing you had yesterday? For me, I like the Georgian bread. I mm. like the puri. That stuff is really good. They make it in a huge kind of ma- massive tandoor, basically. Oh, okay. And slap it on the side, and it gets huh. really crispy and flakes up really well. Nice. That stuff's great. And anything with Camelli Snelli in it, which is the spice blend that right. basically goes on all Georgian food. Right. Um, which is a mixture of, like, a dozen spices. Sure. Um, you can put that on anything. Right. Yeah, it's like Chubrisa from uh, Bulgaria. Yeah, yeah. Right. Very similar. similar, like, multi-spice blend that just gets put on all kinds of stuff. Yeah, it's not going to make it worse. Right. <laughs> exactly. Um, do you have a... I mean, so as as a chef who works at the Museum of Food and Drink, yeah. and you've obviously, you're, you're from Scotland. I am indeed. So, and you've lived in a bunch of different places. Um, do you have a cuisine that you think is, like, ripe to be, like, the next big thing in America? I mean, I would. I, I think Georgian cuisine is pretty... been hearing lots of whispers about it, huh. but also I place myself in places where people... Like, people sure. would be into it, right? Um, I wouldn't say everything. It sort of depends a lot on uh, immigration patterns yeah. as well as where people tend to visit in the future. Sure. I think the influence of China and, and Chinese food versus Chinese American food continues to grow. I think that yeah, I think you're totally right. I mean, it's been very interesting to see the rise of like someone like Jian famous foods, yeah. like to get that Western Fujianese China Chinese food to really people to identify that as being different yeah, right, from the other either Americanized or Cantonese or Mandarin. Yeah. Um, you uh, are a big fan of the Chinese chef's knife. I am. Right? I mean, what we here in the U.S. call a cleaver, but it's not only because it is rectangular of shape, which is what we in the West think of as a cleaver, right? Yes. Can you tell me why, as a chef, you like that shape? So the, the Chinese cleaver is the, the platonic ideal of a knife. So the rule in design is form follows function. But you can knock in a nail with an Etruscan bronze if you want. <laughs> but ultimately, form follows function. And what the Chinese chef's knife is, is a result of like 3,000 years of uh, modification and evolution into the current form. Sure. Whereas the Western chef knife is... Uh, only about two hundred years of yeah. that same kind of same yep. kind of thing. That's not it's not inferior. Well, okay, it's a little bit in. It's less. <laughs> Come on, tell me how you really feel. Slightly, it's different. <laughs> it's, it requires an entirely different skill set. But um, whereas for Western cutting, there's one basic motion, like yep. slicing motion. Yep. In Chinese cutting, there's sixteen different basic motions. The the knife moves along the y-axis uh-huh. as well as the x-axis. Got it. So you will tilt it and slice in different angles as well. So it's just. It's and you can scoop things up with it. They don't yep. break. You yeah. can sharpen them easily. It's yeah. just I'm a big fan of multi tools. Sure, and that's the ultimate multi tool. That's awesome. I you know as as someone who works for a, a Japanese knife company, um, you know I feel like Japan oh, in the in the last thousand years went a very different direction, right? Of making specialized knife shapes for each thing, which yeah. is a very Japanese way of approaching yes. it. But I I always find knives to be fascinating from that design perspective because you know I, I was at in that role in my life, I was at a, uh, a press event for new uh, culinary items, right? And so this year, Kikuichi is debuting uh, a new line of knives made from a different kind of steel with a different color handle. Like, that's our new item, right? And someone came up to me who was a tech reporter, and they said, do you have anything that's smart home? 
And I was like, uh, not really. And, you know, the chef's knife doesn't connect to your Wi-Fi. Right. Right. Like, it doesn't tell you when it needs to be sharpened or, like, how cold the food is. I was like, I mean, I don't. And I and one of the things I said is, you know, the, the kitchen knife is the product of this kind of, like, mass design over a really long time. And to me, I don't think that there, you can't really make it any better. Right. Like, I don't expect someone to take the Chinese chef's knife and make it better. Right. What are they going to add to it to make it better? Well, there's this there's this really incredible poetic thing uh, that happened in materiality in Chinese knives fairly recently. Hmm. So they invented or created an alloy that you very, very rarely need to sharpen. It's like molybdenum and titanium, and it's quite flexible. And there is this ancient legend of a guy called Chef Peng. And if you ever do any research on the history of Chinese chef's knives, you'll come across Chef Ping, and there's always a picture of him holding his knife. And he has a kind of an early form of a Chinese cleaver, what is today called a pork knife. So it's it's got the square shape, but it also curves up at the front mm. and kind of has a hooked uh, scimitar-looking thing. It's very large. And so Chef Ping has this ancient, old-fashioned Chinese knife. And the story of him is he's so good at his job that he can just cut through a cow or a pig, and he never has to sharpen his knife because he knows what he's doing so well. Like he never hits a bone. Exactly. Right? Yeah. And the, uh, that's obviously not true. Obviously he needs right. to sharpen. Of course. <laughs> what it is is a Taoist <laughs> teaching mechanism to be like repetition breeds excellence and yep. things like that. But upon the creation of this alloy for a knife that doesn't need sharpen, the first shape of a Chinese knife that they make upon creating this uh, alloy is the exact replica of right. what they saw Chef Peng was doing. Huh. That's very interesting. And uh, so, I mean... Do you just have one knife in your roll? I my knife roll is a is my Chinese knife and a pair of scissors. Got it. That's it. But I have at the museum we have a collection of Chinese knives. Yeah. I mean, you know, scissors are something that I think is super underrated in the kitchen. Yeah. I feel like people should be using scissors so much more than they are. Um, and they're, you know, again, incredibly simple tool, right, that was developed thousands of years ago. Yeah. And totally does so many things, and people don't think of scissors, right? They don't think of scissors as their for their function. Right, that's they, true. You know. They're super useful. I love them. Yeah, absolutely. Are there any ingredients that you are excited to use or have access to that you've found recently? So I we use a wonderful company called Asia Market. Mm. And Asia Market recently just changed owners. They're in Chinatown. They're actually at 62 Bayard Street in Chinatown. And we're at 62 Bayard Street <laughs> in Brooklyn. That's so a nice, nice synchronicity. <laughs> exactly. Um, so they give us some really wonderful, uh, wonderful ingredients. We have been working a lot with duck. They have duck... They have a live poultry place that they buy the duck from. They kill the duck, they spin the duck, and we get a super fresh duck. And it's just really simple, and we're all everyone's very familiar with duck, but the difference between a really good duck and, like, a week-old duck is pretty right. big, actually. Sure. Uh, let's talk about duck a little bit. So you have done a little bit of work with duck pressing, right? Yes. Yes. I did a... We do... Part of our work at the museum, part of our lab is what we call MOFAD Lab Lab, where we give a demonstration on something that we've been researching. And so we researched the duck press, which is the French crushing mechanism. Can you explain a little bit from a, from a culinary perspective, like why? Why would anybody want to crush a duck? So you want to get the juices out <laughs> of it. At some point, somebody saw a duck while they were pressing cider, and they were like, this could work. <laughs> so, of course, right? That, that's how these things start, right? Yeah. So the idea is you want to extract the maximum amount of juices from this duck. And there's this very... Just like you would want to extract the maximum amount of juice from the apples. Exactly. Or anything you put in a press, really. So there's this very famous restaurant called the Tour d'Argent that does a 
hundreds of euros for a duck, yeah. and their ducks are numbered, and they have this gilded duck press. Yeah. And they press a table side. It's a whole, <laughs> it's a whole pomp and it is. celebration, whatever. So we wanted to kind of democratize that a little bit. Cool. To let as many people see it as possible, yeah. and to show people how these things work. Now, we couldn't get the Latour d'Argent gilded duck press. Well, one, because... Uh, our founder of the museum, Dave Arnold, he also did some work with the duck press and broke two of them. Wow. Which is... Not surprising, knowing Dave. Yeah. I think he was manhandling. <laughs> but to be fair, you have to manhandle it. Yeah, of you course. So you're crushing a duck. You're going to crush a duck. So we got an enterprise juicer. Yeah. Big cast iron thing that will never break. You roast the duck part way. You cut the legs off, put them to one side to confit, cut the breasts off, put them to one side, stuff the rest of the carcass in your juice press and just crush the hell out of it. Hmm. And then you put it into a sauce that is... Basically, a demi-glaze plus liver, sauce runel. Got it. A rune sauce. Then the blood goes in it. You thicken it with the thicken blood. It up, yeah. Goes on top of the of the uh, breast, and Got it. that's that. And normally, you serve it with French fries. Huh. Or pommes frites. Pommes frites, yeah. Right. Um, wow. And so, that is something that you... Is that is that a, an ongoing thing at Mofat, or it's something you guys have... You, you did it, and that was... We did it for, uh, for two things. We did it... Because we found the we found the juice press and we're like, sure. cool, let's press a duck. Right. And we and we do that normally during on Sundays. Sunday afternoons we do special events like that. And then we were also invited to participate in Slow Foods duck cook off. Ah. And so we you know, it's not when we do things like that we prefer to be educational as well as right. as well as delicious. Yeah. So we brought the duck press and like crushing duck press in the middle of this uh contest i mean that's and that's a i mean i you know and i think that that's that's one of the things for me that's very exciting about mofat you know and about the existence of a museum that is dedicated to these things because there's something you know food is interactive um and it you know you can watch someone crushing a duck on youtube but it's not the same yeah. right like the visceral nature of seeing it and hearing it and smelling it and we and let people tasting crush it, it as well right and and so that to me is very that's very exciting and i think that's one of the things about you know that food remains something that it is so valuable to be in touch with it and to have that visceral connection to it that you can't get through a screen you can get partway there you can learn about it you can see it you can find out about it but until they invent a way for me to hold my phone and smell and taste it it's never going to be yeah, the same. absolutely. This episode is brought to you by Shaxbury Cider, who believe cider can be daring, complex, and eminently drinkable. Located in Vergennes, Vermont, Shaxbury make a broad offering of ciders, from the bright and fruity rosé to inventive, small-batch wild apple fermentation. Each fall, Shaxbury takes to the hills of Vermont to forage for the wild and forgotten fruit that make up their lost apple project. Shaxbury, producer of the first American-made Petnat cider, continues to experiment every year with limited edition ciders designed to spotlight locally foraged fruit. To learn more, visit Shaxbury.com or follow them on Instagram at Shaxbury. Are you enjoying this podcast? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. My name is Dana Cowan, and I'm the host of Speaking Broadly here on HRN. Every week, I conduct intimate interviews with the brilliant, powerful women in the food world. We discuss their lives, their careers, and the ways in which they navigate the world at large. You can find Speaking Broadly wherever you listen to podcasts and on heritageradionetwork.org. So tell me about your history as a chef. 
Did you go to culinary school? Did you just rise up by working in kitchens? No, I never went to I never went to any type of school. I'm not a big school guy. I've worked in kitchens since I was in high school, hmm. and I was I, one of the first restaurants I worked in was a Chinese American restaurant, which began my love of Chinese American food. So that, but that was not in Scotland, I assume. That was not in Scotland. <laughs> I did work briefly at a place in Scotland that was kind of did Chinese-ish food in quotation marks. Uh, but I feel like there would be an interesting thing. I don't know if, if you've explored this as you've traveled in the places that you've been. I would be so fascinated to see a uh, either an article or a book or some, just even a blog about Chinese food all around the world. Because when I was in Ukraine, we went to a Chinese restaurant. And because of the availability of different ingredients, there was dill in the Chinese food. Really? It was like hot and sour soup with dill in it. Which was like this bizarre culture clash of like flavors, where like no Chinese food I'd ever experienced had dill in it. Right, right. <laughs> That's interesting. There's we're actually doing an event, pretty much like that at Mofad over the course of this month called Chow X, hmm. which is Chow, our current exhibition, yeah. combined with uh, some other place where sure. Chinese food grows. Sure. So we did Chow X Judaism, where we explored the relationship between yeah. Christmas and Chinese. Totally. We did. Chow X Latinx. Yeah, we explored like South, uh, Central and South American. Yeah, I mean there Chinese used to be. Food. It's gone now. There used to be a great Cuban Chinese restaurant on Eighth uh, Avenue. Yeah, we flew in a guy Carlos from uh, Washington D.C. who's a Cuban Chinese chef. Nice. Made some really interesting stuff. Cool. But the major thing about like Scotland and Chinese food in Scotland is if we were to do Chow, if we were to do the story of Chinese American food in the U.K., we would we wouldn't be talking about Chinese food. We'd be talking about Indian food. Indian right. food is the the Eastern food that came to exactly the UK, yeah. the Donner Kebab of the UK, if you right. will. <laughs> so that's it. So we have things like haggis pakoras and oh, wow. in Scotland, which huh. is something you wouldn't find outside of Scotland, right? Right, right, right. Um, so speaking of haggis, you just did a Burns dinner, right? At we the did. House. We did a big uh, Burns supper, which is a big celebration you do of uh, the national poet Robert Burns, and he has a big poem all about haggis. And it's basically saying that haggis is a great, delicious, massive pudding or sausage, and we don't need any of that fancy French stuff. We're fine with right. this oats and offal. And it's we made the haggis. We make a haggis every year. We got a whole sheep from uh, this guy Pat we were just talking about, and he just showed up one evening with the sheep way earlier than I anticipated. And so we had to, <laughs> we had to butcher a sheep. We turned it into a little exhibition, taught people how to butcher, butcher a sheep. Nice. That's how you butcher a sheep. Yeah. They refer to sheep as large lambs in the meat business in the U.S. Yeah. Mutton like, sometimes. Yeah. I asked for mutton, and he was like, I don't have any mutton. I've got a 50-pound lamb. I'm like, that's a, that's that's a sheep. Pretty much, yeah. yeah. But it, it worked out. We put, you know, offal in offal, and it was a lot of fun. Awesome. And is that, I mean, is that something, so growing up in Scotland, was haggis something that you had often, or is that not really something? No, I mean, I didn't cook Scottish food until I was in the United States. Got it. The United States... Because people found out you were from Scotland, and you were a chef, and you were like, oh, you better cook haggis, right? Clearly you should cook haggis. I tried to get my cousin to come and help cook the Burns night, and he was like, I've never cooked haggis in my life. (laughs) There's no idea how to do it. Um, so you were saying you uh, so you you didn't go to culinary school, but you started working in a restaurant when you were a teenager. Yeah, I just started working in restaurants. I just enjoyed it. Uh, it was very fulfilling. I enjoyed being on the line. It was it was just a uh, it it was a combination of creativity, artisanship, and like working class camaraderie that hmm. I enjoyed. Um, so I, yeah, I worked in a lot of restaurants, and then I got interested more in the theory side of stuff. 
I started opening a few restaurants. I opened two restaurants in San Francisco called Nutri. It was mm. like a Belgian coffee. Yep. Then I ended up as the corporate chef because I opened a lot of kind of fast casual restaurants. Um, I opened two fast casual restaurants in San Francisco. Then I went to work for a company and I was their corporate chef for a few years. Got it. Basically reinventing. They tasked me with reinventing their, their menu. So what did, you, what did you do? What did you put on the menu? Well, I did... They tasked me with rein, reinventing their menu in this uh, sandwich shop. So this sandwich shop, they wanted me to uh, revitalize their menu. And so I put a couple sandwiches on there. I put like a banh mi on there. And they were very excited about that because it's yeah. exotica. Yep. Uh, and then I also decided to go full hog and do a, uh, a cold Szechuan noodle dish. Mm. This, was, this was a few years ago. So Szechuan peppers weren't really known, right. but they were available. Sure. Um, just in that sweet spot. Yep. And so I, th- I, I thought that it was going to be like the next big thing. Everyone was going to put Szechuan peppers on everything. Right. And so you I were ahead of your time. I feel, like, I feel like that's in like, I feel like we're we're almost there. I almost. feel like maybe 2021, 2022, we'll get to like Szechuan peppercorns and everything. Yeah, may- and for maybe for the south, and, th- and also this, this restaurant's based in the southeast and like rural, and so it was one. It's cold noodles. That was a tough sell. <laughs> right, 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 right. Two, it makes your mouth numb, so everyone thinks they're allergic to it. Right. And it was there wasn't enough education behind it, I don't sure. think, in order to teach. Because even then, I was really much more interested in educating people about these kind of things than just making sandwiches. Uh, and that was a that was a spectacular failure. We took out like <laughs> billboards <laughs> to try to convince people to get it. it was just constant complaints. Oh my gosh, yeah, that's, it was miserable. So, that's amazing. I mean, so I I can't wait though. And like in a couple of years, people will look back on that. Right, like when it finally does, when yeah. Central Peppercorns finally do penetrate the rural South. Sure, I feel like you'll be in a position where you'll be like, "Oh yeah, I remember that place had these cold noodles. Those were great. Whatever happened to those?" Right, right it's exactly. going to like come full circle. Right, it caused the downfall of the whole. Thing. <laughs> so, uh, working in a museum that's dedicated to food, do you have a large collection of cookbooks and things yourself, or do you mainly like keep that at the museum? I both. I mean, the museum, my collection of things and the museum's collection of things it's a fuzzy line yeah because sure. a lot of the knives are mine knives a lot of the crocs are micro that kind of thing. right so it's a it's a bit of both but i do have a, a an, uh, kind of an obscene amount of cookbooks got it as well uh so you also do a lot of fermentation i do uh i know that you worked on the koji dinner that was at the beard house last year yeah um with some other folks who have, who have been on this podcast before uh rich and sean were yeah. on the were on the show richie and sean doherty um and so tell me about that like did, was fermenting something that you did growing up did you eat fermented foods growing up did you come to it later as a chef i ate fermented foods growing up we would pick we uh there was always pickled stuff uh. Uh, mostly just simple pickles. Nothing sure. koji-related. Right. Um, I got into fermentation as an investigative kind of practice when I was at El Bui, trying to find new uses for old ingredients or old uses for new ingredients, treating them oldly. Because when I was there, it was right around the time uh, all of the Nordic Food Lab was doing a lot of their fermentation stuff. So it was a big kind of fermentation zeitgeist going around. Right. So I did a lot of kind of my more esoteric, weird fermenting stuff there, uh, more, more research on it there. And then... I think probably a couple of years before that, I read a book called Wild Fermentation by Sandor Katz, sure. which is a common story, I think. Yeah. Everyone reads that book and then wants to go and ferment stuff. I mean, he's he's the fermenting prophet, right? Like yeah. That's, yeah. It can, his influence cannot be overstated, I don't think. No, and nor, nor, nor can, like, how great a person he is. Like, he's, he's such a, he's so sharing and so, so he's a great teacher. 
Um, I feel like it's a very like we are we are lucky as people who are interested in fermentation to have access to someone yeah, like him, yeah. right? I mean, like it's really it's a no doubt. So that was kind of the the impetus, and then I did a lot of fermenting uh, work when I got to Mofad because a lot of it's, we have uh, we have space. We're a big warehouse, so we do a lot of uh, fermenting. Um, I briefly ran a brunch restaurant in New York um, where we sold a lot of avocado toasts. <laughs> Avocados, and we also had a basement with no ventilation, and it was really hot. So if you put avocados in a hot, non-ventilated room, the amount of spores that are just everywhere in that room causes everything to spontaneously ferment. And so I tried to... Wow. And then we also had, like, bananas, fruit. Everything would ripen in a day. Huh. So we would get raw avocados in there, and then they would be soft in two days just because of the heat, because of the, the yeah. amount of of uh, microbes in the air. Yeah. It was super great. So that's when I really got into just wild fermenting everything in that room, because that room was... You'd leave a, you know, leave a glass of water in it. <laughs> that's amazing. So so what did you make from the avocados? I didn't make anything. I just sold avocado toast. Got it. I used this, the kind of miasma yeah, surrounding right. the avocados <laughs> to spontaneously ferment every anything I could get my hands on. Oh, super cool. And that's then great. with koji dinner, I, I became very interested in kind of the acceleration of, of fish sauce production using uh, using the amylase and protease enzymes in, in mm. koji. That's what I was super interested in. And that's something you did at El Bulli? No, uh, what well, we did with non-fish proteins. Okay, uh, but it's something that's been researched a little bit because it's it makes fish sauce a little bit cheaper and a little bit easier to make. Yeah. So there's published work on it because there's people who fund the work. And and right and and there's value in the fish sauce production end to make it happen faster because yeah. when you're talking about any kind of fermentation on a commercial scale, it's very difficult because you're taking whatever your product is and you have to own it and it has to sit there. Yeah. before you can sell it Absolutely. right like so from a business model that's very tough because you have to buy all this inventory and then leave it and hang on to it yeah. before you can make your finished product you're so, yeah you're selling fish sauce futures mostly yeah right exactly um, wow so that's very interesting so now so so there's been work on using koji to speed up the fish sauce production to, to speed up fish sauce production and any I mean any kind of protein it'll it'll break down but fish sure. sauce most especially right yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, because that's the main protein sauce protein do you have garden. any fish sauce fermenting currently i have so much fish sauce fermenting. Oh, i want to come see it yeah i've got like 15 to 20 different types of fish oh sauce. very cool i i really want to make fish sauce um it's next on my like fermentation like bucket list yeah it's a, it's worth it it's not everyone assumes it's going to be stinky right it's only stinky if something's gone wrong right if something hasn't gone wrong everything is fine i mean interestingly there's a lot of talk about that when people talk about buying fish right that like, I mean, there are some fish that smell more than others. Certainly, small oily fish smell more. Yeah. But you know, there's a lot of talk about if it smells fishy, then it's probably not good. That's right? true. Which is not, it's not a full blanket statement that you can make about fish, but it's true to a certain extent. Yeah. If before you've cooked it, after after you've cooked it, it yeah, yeah, of course, fish. of course. Um, wow. So I want, to, I definitely want to come and taste your uh, taste the fish sauce and check. That's it also out. they also mention it in the new in the Noma book of their garum yep. uh, thing. That's basically. Yeah. Fish sauce with a different type of protein. Right. Using the same protease enzyme. It'll break down anything. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, koji is uh, incredible and not that well understood still, uh, I feel like, by the, the scientific community and, and certainly not by the home cooking community. Yeah. Um, and I, I think that it's, it, it, again, like, it's an exciting time because people are starting to identify different strains of it and starting to use it for different things. Um, and it really, you know, I, the case could be made that koji has more to do with the advancement of human civilization than almost any other microbe, I think. Yeah. 
Probably. in terms of what it has done for food preservation and alcohol creation. That's true. <laughs> right. <laughs> Actually, to bring it back to what we were talking about, the Japanese aesthetic of having one knife for every fish, right. more or less. Yeah. They have the same with koji. Yeah. So koji is the Japanese name for this Aspergillus family, as, as you all know. Uh, but you have like a rice koji, barley koji, etc. You wouldn't use a barley koji to make gamazake. Right. You wouldn't use a rice koji to make soy sauce. Right. Now, the rule with East Asian food history is it all goes back to China. And there's a mold called kui mold in China, which is an Aspergillus mold. But much like the Chinese knife is a is a workhorse, does everything. Kui mold does everything in Chinese fermentation. Mm. It's rice wine, it's soy sauce, it's uh, used in types of fish sauce production, it's used in uh, making fermented tofus, it's used in making fermented duck, the red yeast duck you get. Yeah. That's kui mold, and that is a massive, hundreds of thousands of different strains of uh, aspergillus all rolled up into one little bowl. Huh. And it's super, it's way more flexible than koji. Uh, well... I mean, it's as flexible as koji, but it's not as uh, specialized. So koji's been been bred to go white when it's growing, so that we know, okay, that's white, that's good. Kui, not so much. Oh, it's been bred to go white. Yeah, that's why. Very interesting. Because I never knew it was green. bred to be that way. Yeah, it's uh, the the idea is it's it's very very specially bred so that when it's when it's white and when it's smelling like that, you know it's ready to go. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, because that's what we have available to us, right? Especially looking at something that's been used historically, you know, it's like a vinegar mother, right? Historically, we didn't know that microbes even existed. Yeah. But you knew that if this thing formed on the top of your wine, it was turning into vinegar. And that's what you wanted, right? And the smell and the taste. And the same thing is true of koji, right? And we, but I, I never knew that it was bred to be white, as a way to identify it and to differentiate it from things. Often black mold, right, is yeah. considered to be bad for you. People kind of stay away from it. And green is often sort of felt to be, you know, that's when things are more uh, putrefying. Yeah. Well, yeah. koji turns green when it starts to sporate. Yes. Um, and yellow sometimes as well, right? Yeah, you don't want to eat the yellow one, though, yeah. I don't think. You can wash off the green. But, Got it. Um, although I would caution, if you don't know what you're doing, yeah. just go with the koji rather than the kui. Right, sure. Because uh, it, it changes colors a lot. Got it. It's a little bit more difficult. You have to do a, lot of, a little bit more testing. There's also an Indonesian one called ragi manis, huh. which is used, again, for rice wine production. Yeah. And there's a very famous Korean one called nuruk, yep. which is used for makoli, which yeah. is actually a version of aspergillus. So you can take nuruk, if you want, and make bean paste out of it. Got it. Very interesting. Yeah, And, and that, actually, I have found it's easier to find nuruk in... in uh, in gross in like Korean groceries, it's yeah. very easy to find. Whereas koji has been getting easier to find, but still can be kind of, kind of hard to get your hands on. Yeah, absolutely. And you can also just buy yeast balls in Chinese yes. uh, supermarkets. Yeah, those I love. That's aspergillus as well. Yeah. So, do you have like a suggested like good recipe, good place for someone to start? Like, if someone has heard about koji and has been reading about koji, like what's a what's a good way for them to start? Let's say they can get those the Chinese yeast balls. Um, those usually come in like a two pack. Yeah. They look like. Uh, they look like candy, but they're not. Uh, <laughs> they're like they're about the size of a marshmallow. I would I yeah. would say, and usually they're like two for like fifty cents. I mean, they're like they're they're ridiculously cheap. Yeah, and it's just like a chalky little ball. So what what's a good like home recipe to start with if you had some of those? I would make rice wine because I I go through I make a lot of ferments, but I go through my drinkable ferments at a fair clip. Yeah, <laughs> rather than my eatable <laughs> ferments, which is much smaller. I would say you want to get five liters. A five-liter pot, five-liter jug. Yep. Is that in old money? Uh, <laughs> a big, just over a gallon. A gallon right. or something. Yeah. Get that. Um, you want to overcook some rice. 
get so really get it soft. It's going to liquefy, but just you want to overcook it slightly to where it's going to be mushy. You don't want any any hardness when you bite into it. It's not sushi rice. So, like, uh, you know, just if you have a rice cooker, put the rice in there, do three cups, three quarts of rice, and this will yield enough rice for your five-liter uh, yeah. thing. Get three quarts of rice, and then do six quarts of water, because then it's going to double. Whereas normally with a rice cooker, you do one to one. Yep, got do it. Two do to two one to one, and it'll so overcook. Goopy. Yep. Then you can take that, and you can let it cool. Then you can put it into your into your uh, jug. Then you're going to break up the yeast and put it in warm water and let it bloom, just like you would do red uh, uh, bread yeast. Yep. Then you pour it in there, mix it all together. It's going to look really uh, uh, wet. And if it's not looking really wet, add a little bit of water until you've reached the desired fill level. Then close it, and then come back tomorrow, and it will have liquefied. It will have absorbed all of the liquid, and then come back the next day. And it will have liquefied, hmm. and then give it like three days. And depending on who you ask, people in the north of China will say, oh, you need to keep it very cold. People in the northeast of China will say, oh, well, it needs to be hot. And then people in the <laughs> south of China will be like, it should be, you know, pretty almost baking like in right. the oven. And so the answer is, it, and it's going to turn into rice wine. There's right. very little you can do to stop it at that And point. then how long before you would drink it? Well, it depends how strong you want it. So mm. if you were going to uh, make makoli, it's like two or three days. Right. Because it's like a kind of a soupy rice. Right. I tend to make rice wine uh, probably about a week, two weeks, depending on the temperature. So in this in this, in this this weather, it's very, very cold. So it's, I do like two or three week rice wine right now. Then I uh, filter it and then I spin it mm. in the centrifuge oh, to, clarify. to get it super clear. So yeah. it's like nice, dry, slightly ricey, um, more akin to what we would think of as a wine, so it's not as cloudy as, as a whole. Right, right, right. And then what, I mean, what alcohol level are you getting out of that? I would normally get like 8 to 10, cool. something like that, nice. depending. Because yeah. you just really starchy rice, really gloopy. You right, can right, right. use short grain rice as more starch in it. Yep. Yeah, I mean, I've, I did it. The first time I ever came across that was uh, we, had a, we had a babysitter, a Tibetan babysitter for our, for our daughter, and she invited us over for a Tibetan uh, like uh, Independence Day celebration yeah. and served it. And she was making it in her closet in these big jars. And I was like blown away as someone who'd done a lot of fermenting and made homebrew and mead and cider. And I'd never come across these Chinese yeast balls. And so she gave me some and I started making making nice. some of it. She aged hers for like two months. Yeah. She let hers like really go as long as possible. After the primary fermentation, it's good to go. Yeah. We have a, a lady who uh, is at the museum. She's a terracotta pot maker as her hobby. So mm. she made me terracotta pots and then we uh, do it in there wow that's and great and then now you don't need the yeast balls you just put it into the because the terracotta pot. has all of the yeast and all of the koji basically living in right. it right which is like I said the very Chinese way of doing it whereas yeah. you don't it's not a new strain every time you just build on it build on it build on it right it's like awesome. 3,000 years old when can people see you at the museum? Like, what are your, like, do you have normal, like, office hours? Or when are you guys, like, are you doing the labs every Sunday if people want to come by? We do We do the labs, like, once a month we'll do a big lab. Cool. And then once a month we're going to do a large dinner, which is going to be a result of all of our research in the lab. So if we were doing fermentation, we're doing one about space food, for example. Oh, cool. We I want do, to come to that. <laughs> yeah, a lot of meat and tubes. And then we would do a big dinner on that. So that's once a month. And you can just check our website, which is Great. mofad.org, to look awesome. all that stuff up. Very cool. And then I'm there Friday through Sunday. Great. Awesome. Well, John, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you for joining me on Feast Your Ears. Thank you so much. Uh, you can follow John at Crastafarian on Instagram. Uh, and definitely check out mofad.org. And I will definitely be, I'm going to be looking forward to the space food, and I want to come and taste your fish sauce. Absolutely. Anytime. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Feast Your Ears today. 
You can find Feast Your Ears as well as all the other great shows on Heritage Radio at heritageradionetwork.org, iTunes, Spotify, Pandora, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please take a moment to rate and review the show, and please reach out if you have any questions. You can reach me via email, harry at thebrooklynkitchen.com, and you can follow me on Instagram, at thefoodballer. Talk to you next week. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without the support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.